ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, and welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff. I'm Tucker. And this is the only podcast guaranteed to come at you, not every day, and also to cause brain bleeding. Thank you so much for putting down your Robinhood app and doom scrolling the stock market to join us for a little bit of time today on the podcast. And we, we would like to thank all of you folks on Wall Street Bets for sending our stock through the moon. Um, you've <laughs> helped us avert bankruptcy, and I will now be able to feed my illegitimate children in my secret family. So it's all because of you folks. Thank you. Yeah, no, going public about a year or two ago was really the right call. And, you know, the dividends and everything have been extraordinary. These are all finance words. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> um, so, Tucker, before we started recording, you seemed kind of pissed about something. Yeah, What's, uh, I was because I um, actually had a stroke earlier today. I had a stroke. Oh, Jesus. I went to the hospital. Um, they're telling me it's going to be a huge rehab process to get me back to full, full Tuckerness. And this is because I was on the Wikipedia article for um, Olive Garden. I don't know. Sometimes you just fall into a rabbit hole. And I saw an image of an Olive Garden in Times Square, New York City. And this might have been something when I was in New York. I kind of like saw, you know, in the corner of my eye. And I didn't really even think about it because, oh, it's in the background. But just being there, I look at it and I think to myself, my God, there are so many rednecks who are going to visit New York City to see the Statue of Liberty or whatever. They're just being their own tourist self. And then they think to themselves, huh, I really could go for some Italian food. Let's go to Olive Garden. Let's be in New York City and go to Olive Garden. And this is a mindset. This is a mindset that I just fully cannot reckon with. So I have two points about an Olive Garden in Times Square in New York City. First of all, I have actually been to, not of my own volition, the uh, Bubba Gumps in uh, <laughs> in in uh, Times Square, and I forget what the reason was. I think it was like we were. I was on like a family vacation, and we wound up in Times Square, and like we just we didn't have time between this and another thing we were doing to like go out into an actual neighborhood and like get good food. Mm-hmm. And so I sat in there, and like the type of people, like these strange bedfellows in the. Uh, <laughs> In the Bubba Gumps in there. The other thing I want to say is you can't put a price on when you're here, your family. (laughs) No, but I mean, there are so many different options for Italian food just in the entire area. But do they make you feel like family? They make you feel like La Familia. I guess that's I mean, that could be better. I mean, that's probably Spanish, but Spanish and Italian, as they said in The Simpsons, are secretly the same language. It's just a big textbook. Really, big textbook that's uh, trying to convince us that these are all these romance languages are different languages to sell us different textbooks to kind of learn about it. And I've seen through it. It's I've all Rosetta it. Stone. It's just Rosetta yeah, Stone all the way down. I'm fully woke. There are maybe four languages in the world. And one of them is... <laughs> Afrikaans. Ne- one of them is not English. English is not a real language. It was invented by J.R.R. Tolkien about a hundred years ago in just a very elaborate conlang exercise that it got out of hand. And here we are. The first thing that came to my mind when you said J.R.R. Tolkien was big Hobbit, (laughs) which doesn't mean anything. That's not really a joke, but the phrase big Hobbit is very funny to me. For some reason that's reminding me of, uh, 
in the very early editions of The Hobbit, they had illustrations for some of the characters, and they never uh, J.R.R. Tolkien never specified the size of Gollum, and for some reason, some illustrators decided, you know what? He's a giant. He's a giant who's just squished here in the mountain, kind of living in this cave, and Bilbo comes across, and they have this lesson, and he's like, no, 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 no. This does not go with my elaborate world building that heretofore has solely been inside my head. Let me specify this. See, I want to be someone who was working with J.R.R. Tolkien, and he's just like, no, you missed the vibe like entirely. Like That's a pretty spectacular screw-up. That gives me big um, like the Odyssey vibes when he runs into the Cyclops, <laughs> and he has to tell him he's nobody. That, that might have been the assumption that people... We're making in that sort of thing. brittle contest or else you get eaten, you know? Um, yeah. Man, what is this podcast about? That's a, that's it's, a great it's, question. It's a treasure. You know, it's the platonic ideal of, uh, the real treasures, the friends you made along the way while you were listening to us talk about <laughs> nonsense. So the, the content was just what you heard along the way is yes. what you're getting at. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> so, um, to kind of move into, you know, some some familiar waters. Um, this week, I decided to sit down and, you know, based on the little Netflix thumbnail, I did not think I was going to watch it, but then I read the cast and I was like, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. And so I saw um, The Devil All the Time with Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, uh, Harry Melling in that, which mm-hmm. I haven't seen him in a lot of stuff, but then I saw The Queen's Gambit not too long ago and I really liked him as like kind of this super nerdy, like... Uh, chest older chess champion dude and the so have you seen uh have you seen the devil all the time i've not i've not but i think i'm familiar with the premise yeah so i mean it's basically just southern gothic but it plays kind of like a tragedy a lot of the reports and uh like reviews basically criticized a large lack of like through line and you know not a lot of like narrative direction to it but as like a period piece and as just getting to watch actors do what they do really well, you know, like Holland not having to act like a literal baby, baby child and Pattinson getting to be like this really disgusting, icky, you know, kind of religious fanatic pastor. It's just uh, it's a it's it's hard to say it's a good time, but it's a it's a time and I don't regret the time. That's. That's really... (laughs) Look, once you graduate from drama school in the United Kingdom, they put a very small explosive in your brain that will go off if you don't take a minimum number of roles. I'm not sure the exact numbers. I've not seen these secret documents. Point is, you have to spend uh, the majority of your year on set faking an American accent to actually (laughs) be a working British actor. It's in the law somewhere in their union. And... So that's part of the reason why Robert Pattinson... How many movies have you seen with Robert Pattinson where he's actually doing an English accent? He, he's something like his own natural speaking voice. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, you're blowing my mind. Robert Pattinson naturally has a British accent? <laughs> yeah, right? Right? I literally did not know that. And I like I saw like all the Twilight films and everything, which obviously he's speaking with a, some kind of accent. Lord. Um, wow. Well, that's good. I was trying to think of who you were referring to specifically in the cast. So I was like, I don't think Tom Holland's British. Tom Holland is British. Ah, jeez. You didn't know? Oh, seriously? See, this is this is the extent to which uh, this They're... change is so uh, f- has so fundamentally 
it, it's such a hugely fundamental change to how we look at the film industry that we don't even like so many of these actors are Brits and is Harry Melling American. He's the guy who was also in Game of Thrones, right? I do believe he had some time on Game of Thrones. He yeah. was British. Yeah. The only non-Brit or, or rather. Wait, so, so we had a bunch of the friggin' Queen's Guard come and talk about the Rust Belt. I don't know that exa- I like that. Very exactly. Much. Exactly. It's like this is another indie movie that I didn't see. Uh actually recently but there was some movie i forget the name off the top of my head that came out it was about these guys who were these lower class kind of irish american boxers living in boston and all of the main cast were brits coming over kind of slumming it doing american accents and it's funny because one of the hosts of uh, come town nick mullen was in this scene just being like this upper crust American guy kind of looking down on this, these bums in Boston again, played by these British guys. And it's funny cause he's like the only American with a speaking line in this scene, just talking, being himself. It's, it's incredibly funny the degree to which, um, and it's not just British, but overwhelmingly upper-class British folks whose parents had the connections to get them into all of these good preparatory schools, all of these good drama classes in the United Kingdom. They finally make their screen debut at the age of three after they made their stage debut at three months in the womb. (laughs) Um, And so then they, of course, come to the United States and just dominate. I think one of the few actually... British actors who's consistently had a career um, in the United States who came from a working class background was James McAvoy, you know, uh, Magneto and the new. Um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you. So hmm. yeah, it's just a funny kind of thing that once you notice it, once you go down the IMDB and Wikipedia rabbit hole and are actually looking at the background of all these guys, it's like, man, well, and that kind of gives me like a, so one of the things that I was thinking of while I was like watching the film, and so this is partially just comes from like my background and everything, because we've grown up in, you know, Appalachia, you know, the the South, you mm-hmm. know, more or less. And basically, it sometimes rubs me in a very strange way seeing portrayals of this area. And again, this was more so like rural Ohio and like a little further north into the Rust Belt. But it kind of brought to mind like some of the controversy surrounding the recent release of uh, what the remake of Hillbilly Elegy. Right. The adaptation, the adaptation. That's what I meant. Yeah. And it just, I don't know. It seems like a weird thing that we can't find Southerners to tell those stories. It, well, I mean, it was a Southerner telling that, well, it was an Appalachian guy telling that story. It's just a a bad story. Bad story. In the case of Hillbilly Elegy, but it's it's funny, obviously. There are a lot of people who have not spent a great deal of time in East Tennessee who do not understand the nuances of this region. Yes, we have a lot of knuckle-draggers here, but guess what? You have a lot of knuckle-draggers living all across the country and all across the world. It just manifests differently. Sure. And I mean, I it was interesting. A lot. Something that several reviewers noted was this overwhelming feeling of like, 
there's just trauma happening for trauma's sake. Like there's a lot of shock value inherent to some of the things that happen in the film. Mm-hmm. Like there's some pretty outright instances of animal cruelty. There's some murder. There's a serial killer. Like there's a lot of stuff happening. And it gave me like almost this Les Mis-esque uh, feeling of just watching it and just knowing like every single human on the screen is going down the tubes. Right. That's just what's happening. And like, I, I feel like as a viewer, if you can kind of get past that a little bit in like the spirit of a tragedy, you know, it like, it really doesn't make for an unpleasant viewing experience. The highest I saw it get on any form of critical review was like a 70 out of a hundred. And that was the generous stuff. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily should have gotten panned as hard as it did. I think if you view it as like a masterclass in, you know, kind of like this period piece and, you know, some really solid acting performances. I felt similarly about uh, American Hustle when it came out. Didn't like the movie that much, but it was like, it was a good watch. American Hustle had the misfortune coming out at around the same time as The Wolf of Wall Street. Yep, I remember that dichotomy getting drawn a lot. They weren't really about the same (laughs) sort of thing, but they were, they're movies about people running these scams, right? Yeah. And within that context, Wolf of Wall Street was just a much more enjoyable film, not only a more enjoyable film, but arguably had a lot more nuance. It really kind of dove into its subject matter in a more interesting way than American Hustle did. And, but you know, Todd Phillips, he had the last laugh because he came back a few years later and he did a Joker, which beat Scorsese at his own game in that one because, hey, I get to make a movie that's a ripoff about of Taxi Driver and all that good vintage Scorsese stuff, and it'll make over a billion dollars at the box office because I used a comic book character. Ha-ha. Win-win. Oh, how the turntables. And uh, one... So you mentioned Joker. Sorry, I'm playing like ping pong in my brain. (laughs) Um, So in Joker, I really enjoyed some of the like the scoring motives and ideas that they did specifically like some of the cello usage, which got memed all to hell because it's kind of the thing that they played when he was dancing by himself in the bathroom, (laughs) which again, viewing that scene in in isolation, it's stupid. But in the context of the film, it works Um, in The Devil All the Time. There's this hymn more or less this hymn song that the mother is constantly singing and it gets woven into a lot of the scoring elements and it kind of gets distorted and retreated and a lot of stuff done to it and it's just like really really artfully done from that respect like that's very high level compositional material there Mm -hmm. to be doing that so I mean like there was a lot of production value and actually I think it was uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's name was somewhere in the uh, somewhere in the credits Maybe he was a producer. Hey, real directed by David Russell. David O. Russell, right? I he did, of course, The Fighter and a bunch of these other really good movies. Yeah, but no, also that similar kind of the late Phillips filmography is very similar in a lot of ways to what David O. Russell has been doing for the past twenty years. So that's where that's what got me. That's, oh well, that's un, that's understandable. Poe Buddy's nerf victim. Am I right? Anything else you wanted to say about? Misters Holland and Pattinson trying out the Appalachian lifestyle for size? Um, no, other than just I'm really excited for the Batman. Mm-hmm. That's that's all I got, just thinking about Pattinson doing doing his Batman. It'll be interesting. Matt Reeves obviously has done a lot of good movies recently, so 
it, it, I'm looking forward to it, but in the more near term with the DC extended universe, and actually, I guess these are separate universes now, they have no idea what they're doing with this. Just with in this general franchise. or with the universal continuity? I, it, it will be interesting to see how the Snyder Cut plays out. They've decided they're going to release that on March 18th on HBO Max. and The Snyder Cut of? The Justice League. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right. And... Yeah, we'll just see how that plays out. But moving on, I mean, when, as long as we're talking about uh, big budget uh, action movies, we go back with giant monster movies. And this has been a heck of a week for news about this genre, of course, given that we got our trailer for Godzilla vs. Kong. And then oh, we yeah. got news the other day that finally J.J. Abrams is doing a direct sequel to Cloverfield. And there's a lot to unpack. Which, here. if that was on your 2021 bingo card, you're Nostradamus. Like, I, I didn't see that coming. Maybe he's been talking about it, but I, you have I a didn't solid, see it coming. You have a solid 50-50 chance to assume that at any given time that there's something in development that's going to end up being a stealth kind of, like, Cloverfield sequel or prequel or sidequel or set in the same general world as it because... We've gotten a couple Cloverfield movies here over the past... 10 Cloverfield Lane. Did you see that? Mm-mm-mm. No. It was... All right. Did you see uh, the Cloverfield... What was it? The Cloverfield Project? We've had a lot of adjacent material to it, and I didn't see anything past OG Cloverfield. Right. And, so. there's, and there's really very little in the way of connective tissue between these different installments. It's just... Sure. Some guy at the studio thought, you know what? We need a brand to kind of tie together our weird, uh, our weird science fiction movies that we're going to be putting out for the near future. Cloverfield did pretty well. Let's just decide after the fact that everything is a Cloverfield movie now. So, uh, to to pause for a minute, just talking about Cloverfield as a as a thing. Do you remember the promotional material for Cloverfield? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was. So, so well done. I remember just being like very struck by it when it like because I'm trying to I'm trying to think of how old I would have been when that was coming out because that was that's been a hot minute. That for came out in early 2008. Yeah, it's uh, 2008. So, I mean, pr- promotional material could have been anywhere late 2007 or even a little prior. And so what I mean, that puts me I was like 13 or something. And like. Good Lord, it was just very like mysterious and so ominous. And I remember like going to sit down in the theater, and I was just like, I have no idea what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it was wild. And I saw the movie, and let's be honest, it was okay. It was <laughs> one of those things. <laughs> That's my that, memory. Yeah, that really, it was. Everyone remembers the hype. And yeah, exactly. If they have any sort of positive memory about it. And that's kind of what stuck with people for the better part of the the past decade and or more than a decade now, almost 15 years now. That's I hate time. <laughs> time sucks. No. So that's how they keep on thinking, man, it's not really the. It's not really Cloverfield the movie that they keep on wanting to remake or make a sequel to or whatever. Rather, it's the hype to Cloverfield that they want to make a sequel to or fulfill on some level, right? So it's a very alluring thing to see this. Uh, it's a very alluring prospect, I think, 
if you're one of these guys working in the industry, if you have one of these movies that has nothing to do with Cloverfield, but is vaguely science fiction or horror or something, and it's not testing particularly well, but you need to sell tickets at the end of the day. And so you think, you know what? Let's just kind of say it's a Cloverfield movie. And it's not just Cloverfield that does this. There are so many different... Remember how they actually, a couple of years back, this was a really big news story for a solid week, and then the movie came out and nobody cared, when they finally did a much later sequel to um, The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was just kind of this generic horror movie that I I forget what the original uh, name they had given to this movie was, but then, like, out of nowhere, just a few weeks before the movie was released or something, uh, they announced, oh, this is actually a Blair Witch Project movie. This is it. And, of course, everyone pays attention, but that's, it's kind of like... You know, with going back to Joker, any sort of movie now, you can just like slap a franchise onto it, no matter how tenuous the actual existence of the franchise is. Would we say that Blair Witch Project was a franchise? No. And but you can slap on any sort of brand to it and it works. You can't say that. My my understanding for Blair Witch was that the, the whole appeal was it was very like cult classic y. Like mm-hmm. people really dug it for it and how like weird the production techniques were and stuff like that. Like, I don't think found footage was overly popular at the time or beforehand. Not so much. No. And then never really continued to catch on ever again. Like as above, so below was found footage and that was pretty decent. But Cloverfield was arguably like the high point of the genres. No, that's not even true. Paranormal activity was that. But is Paranormal Activity technically found footage? At least the first one, right? Yeah, I mean, it's all like security cams and stuff, but I guess well, I didn't like... in the sense that, you know, this is footage that yeah, someone yeah, found. Yeah, 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 I understand, yeah. Arguably, the the logical conclusion to this sort of marketing gimmick would be to put a movie out in theaters. Actually, this happened with um, Unbreakable, right? Unbreakable was only, uh, you know, one movie, and then nearly 20 years later split comes out and at the very end they reveal that the movies are tied together and that was kind of the twist oh man this is part of a franchise which if you think about is kind of a sad thing for to be a twist uh, nowadays (laughs) and i remember recently this was a few months ago they announced that they were doing another predator movie at well technically disney now since they bought out fox this is a weird timeline (laughs) no um but they announced, oh, yeah, we're going to do a Predator movie, and it's going to be set during the Civil War era out west. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Predator's going to be visiting these, this American Indian tribe or something like that. And then the funny thing was the director apparently posted on Twitter. I didn't ever actually see this tweet. He seemed kind of pissed, and there's a little bit of controversy, and then that went away for a while. And so the rumor was, really, this was supposed to be a movie that was marketed as some sort of Western epic that would have been released to theaters as a Western movie. And then oh, halfway through, Predator shows up out of nowhere. Yes. and. If that's true, it makes me mad that someone kind of... Who like, would leak that? Because that... <laughs> that's the burning of the library at Alexandria, really. Like, that's one of the few ways in which some twist like that would actually be really cool. And, well, here we go. Well, I mean, was it... 
Cowboys versus Aliens wasn't the first like thirty or forty minutes of the film nothing to do with aliens. It was just cowboys. But it was called Cowboys versus Aliens. Yeah, I know. So, so it's like, not a what twist. If, but, but what if what if they hadn't called it Cowboys versus Aliens? What if they had just called it Cowboys? I, <laughs> or just call it Aliens, and then it's just really uncomfortable for everybody. <laughs> like, no. Uh, yeah, I mean that's true. That's true. It would be cool to have more movies that. Are, that's kind of I think what at the time. And I might be wrong because this is way before our time. Um, I mean, we were alive when this happened, but very young. From Dusk Till Dawn, because the first hour of that movie yeah. had no supernatural elements. It was just vaguely sort of like a crime thriller. I remember then, when you like you showed me that film and watching it for the first hour, I was just like, where does... Because you would build it to me as such. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where does that start happening? And I was very confused. And then, whoops, vampires. But yeah, exactly. this kind of came... At kind of the height of um, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's uh, indie movie bad boy um, period in the 90s. And so if you're going to put out a movie with these guys that was, again, a crime thriller, of course, people are going to see it anyway. So it must have been really cool if you were just approaching on that level that halfway ends. Oop, oop, vampires now, (laughs) vampires now. So can I uh, can I express a take that is completely unfounded, but I want to do it for content? Go ahead. So in my opinion, and so anytime I talk about or I hear people talk about Cloverfield, I view, and I feel like a lot of people do, um, Super 8 as kind of like a sister-ish film. It's like in the same vein of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like Super 8 was just a better realization of the Cloverfield concept. How do you how do you feel about that? I mean, in what way? I mean, like, but they're both monster movies, but just in the sense that it delivered more on the hype that was building up. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so. I don't know. I think that Super Eight had more going on than just the raw essence of oh, this is monster film. Like there was some nostalgia elements happening, and it felt like mm-hmm. a more complete world i suppose to live in as opposed to just like this very centrally focused it was a very different approach in some ways what i never got with super eight was that and i liked it well enough when it came out but it was pretty cool for a time to roast that movie kind of (laughs) it really was to make fun of oh man this is just he's ripping off that era of 80s movies, small town horror sci-fi vibe. He's just ripping off Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. Never mind that Steven Spielberg was actually involved with it, putting that aside. And just this sense that the concept was utterly ridiculous. How could anyone like this? And then only a few years later, Stranger Things does substantively the same thing and everybody loves it. Well, I mean, I think it's okay. But the point is, it's very popular. Doing, what's it bringing to the table that Super 8 didn't? Like, tell me, really. So I think the thing with Super 8, because initially when I saw Super 8 in theaters and I walked out, I was like, that sucked. My gut (laughs) reaction was, why the hell did I just sit here for this entire film? And it's because like, I think you have to have a little bit more appreciation for the fact that they literally tease that moment so, 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 so hard. And then they never really give it to you in its in its full honest entirety. We want like a Jurassic Park style 
deadpan barrel straight down the monster with the camera kind of thing so that we can see the evil in the face or the stranger in the face or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And we never get that. We don't like, you know, we don't have that visceral satisfaction. And so I remember just leaving it and just feeling frankly, pretty blue balled like, and stranger things from the onset, you know, so first of all, it's obviously like, it's a longer form piece, you know, with it being multiple seasons and whatever. And like you get, you get lots of stuff about the monster very quickly, mm-hmm. I think. So, I mean, I think it makes it more palatable, certainly. I um, guess. But, again, it wasn't just that people were ripping on the execution of the movie. They were ripping on the movie on a conceptual basis. And, it, it obviously, this is just one of those things where when people see something and they don't like it, they immediately yeah, go yeah, to like yeah. the but they can't really articulate why they don't like it because it, there's just deep structural plot issues with it or character issues with it so they'll reach for a surface level thing and say that's why I didn't like this even though it really probably was not um what killed the movie like well it makes you sound dumber to be like me want big monster shot right. so you get to deflect off of yourself a little bit and talking about you know very clearly missing the difference between stealing and an homage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But JJ Abrams generally, uh, uh, I think that we've all as a society kind of figured out that his bag of tricks is utterly empty. There are no, there are no tricks even. It's just the vague promise of a trick, the mystery box that he likes building up so much. So, uh, he promised the world that he would bring star Trek back and he kind of left it, in the same spot that it was when he had it. And he promised the world that he was going to revive star Wars and Oh my God. He, well, yeah. Yeah. So we all see how that went. So honestly, he should probably just, and go back to the world of television for a while and rebuild his cachet there because letting him, tried to convince us that, hey, I know I took other people's big franchises and ruined them, but give me a chance with my own, you know? (laughs) Uh, I'll actually do well this time. It's not for me. I mean, I think it's interesting that, so, like, Abrams has done some, you know, some regrettable decisions and some, you know, there have been some less than stellar performances and products, but, like, he hasn't gotten as completely totaled as someone like say M. Night Shyamalan because there were like, you know, there was a, a, a couple films all in a row where he didn't, it's like, Oh, it's a twist. That's his whole thing mm-hmm. is that there's going to be a twist. And then now you can ask like any lay person on the street that couldn't name you three directors and then be like, Hey, tell me about M. Night Shyamalan. And they're gonna be like, Oh yeah, it's going to be bad. Cause it has a twist. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not defending that. I was, I'm not a fan of the whole, Hey, it's going to be a twist kind of thing. But like, I don't know. I think it's weird that we don't people don't troll Abrams in the same way for being like, oh, yeah, you're going to get a hold of that. And then just, you know, he's rapidly approaching that point, though, I think that's good. I think that part of the reason why it didn't happen to him as quickly or as decisively in the context of his career as, say, M. Night Shyamalan is that he was working on big franchises where, well, let's take Star Wars, right? If if. Star Wars, if he had been asked to do like a single shot Star Wars film 
back in 2015. And obviously this wouldn't have happened anyway because they want to do trilogies. But for yeah. the sake of discussion, let's pretend that that was the case. Um, so something all like Rogue One or Solo or something? Sure. Everyone would have probably roasted it, especially if he had the creative freedom to decide what he wanted to do with it. <laughs> because it would have exposed that he said he had no real plan. Um, but that's... The thing, he likes to tease mysteries in the same way that M. Night Shyamalan does, but give the man credit, he, uh, M. Night Shyamalan that is, he will follow through on his bad twist, (laughs) whereas uh, J.J. Abrams will vaguely set something up without any actual plan to finish it, which means that other people are eventually holding the bag. Like the writers on Lost are holding the bag and <laughs> to figure it out. They're or still holding the bag the, on that one. <laughs> or Ryan Johnson was holding the bag after um, The Force Awakens and such, meaning that, oh, Lord. Um, meaning that he doesn't get any of the blame, at least initially, when nothing uh, is paid off. So, And again, now that he was actually forced to complete the Star Wars sequel trilogy... I think people are catching on. See, I actually, I, I don't know. I liked the direction that was set off in, a, in The Force Awakens. If it had continued that trajectory, I would have been much happier than whatever the hell we actually got. Sure. But sure. One of the biggest controversies, of course, in Star Wars fandom, which I don't think anyone's actually arguing this point on a surface level. It's just a proxy for different things, is whether or not they should have planned out the um, sequel trilogy and greater or lesser detail before committing to it, like finding a writer to um, map out all the major plot points. And on, on a pretty surface level, it's easy to say yes, but then you'll have people objecting to that saying, well, they didn't plan out the original trilogy in star Wars. And, but it was one dude. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That that's a bad argument. (laughs) I, I think it's not so much that they're actively, um, I don't think it's so much that they don't think that this is a good idea. On some level, they probably know that would have been at the very least preferable to what happened as it is like these are people who are still kind of defensive of The Last Jedi. And honestly, we could spend yeah, I don't even, an entire I, series I of podcasts I do not, talking about this. I, you could have a trilogy of different podcasts all dealing with that. Right. Yeah. So putting that aside for a minute, the point is, you have a lot of people who really like to criticize Last Jedi from all sorts of different angles. We'll put them aside. We're not passing a value judgment. You'll have a lot of people who are very uh, defensive of The Last Jedi for that reason because they like the movie and they still want to try to do their part to preserve uh, the film's status in pop culture and, and without letting it turn into a situation like you sometimes get these movies where it comes out and everyone likes it to begin with on first pass like avatar say, but then the pop culture consensus turns around on that because there's a small (laughs) avatar aged like a bag of milk on a hot day. So it'll be interesting to be what the see what the, how the sequels received, but putting that aside. um, So you have like a, a dedicated contingent of Last Jedi fans who are absolutely committed to making sure that this does not happen, that the film is not reappraised in such a way on a wide scale. And so I think when they hear, man, they should have planned out the trilogy beforehand, what they think is, you're attacking The Last Jedi. And I can't, I can't countenance that. I can't countenance that. So, can, I, can I offer a slight counterpoint? What's that? Jake Sully. <laughs> 
<laughs> Put your hair in my hair, Jake Sully, and we will make 3D animated $50 million scene alien love. The Daily Brain lead coming at you with the hottest jokes of March 2010. Uh, <laughs> and the funny thing is, I remember people coming out of the theater from Avatar, and I was one of them too. I was just mind blown. It was mm-hmm. just like, oh my gosh. And it's, you know, that's kind of something we were talking about last week. Like when you really experience the captive audience, get lost in the world, get super immersed these massive glaring faults just don't exist. And then it's like you wake up the next morning and you're laying next to like an actual horse in your bed (laughs) and you're just like, Oh, look, I like avatar. I liked avatar. I liked it before, (laughs) before there was this semi ironic sort of um, reclamation of this movie that yeah, all movies are dumb. All movies are dumb. This is not a movie that is any more dumb than any other given massive action movie. Come on. Okay. (laughs) It's it's very fun. It's one of those things that people are focusing on this one little bit. I honestly, one of the big reasons that I think that, Avatar was so easily kind of co-opted in the public consciousness is that Avatar came out at around the same time, like a, a year and a half afterwards, uh, to be sure, uh, around the same time as the first couple installments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And finally, over 10 years later, they got to a point in Avengers Endgame where they were able to beat Avatar's uh, global box office gross. You see, the thing is that over the past 10 years, we've got essentially constant Marvel Cinematic Universe content, right? True. We've, whereas, and so that helps kind of keep the fan base alive and keep people who are willing to defend it alive. Avatar's big weakness as a franchise, I'm not even sure you can call it a franchise at this point because it's one movie. It's one movie, and there hasn't been an endless stream of sequels and prequels and spinoffs and uh, television adaptations and what have you around to keep the fan base organized and coherent in uh, the year of our Lord 2021, meaning it's going to be interesting kind of going it when they finally do the sequel, whenever they get around to it, that this has been on the rocks for the longest time now. Um yeah, so it. I, I'm so sorry. So I was Googling Avatar to double check like director names and release dates and stuff. And the first autofill is why is Avatar so famous? <laughs> okay, continue. I, I mean, it made a lot of money. No. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that, <laughs> that's, 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 that's the, 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 that's the, that's the, the long joke. and short of it. Yes, but people kind of like forget why it made money. And yeah. so, of course, it's, of course, it's easy to come in and get all the people who want to assess it on the most surface level in the most surface level way, because there's no, no, but there's no huge fan base for avatar. There are only kind of people like me and others who are contrarian, who, who, who seem for some reason, like we're contrarians because we're defending a movie that made over $2 billion at the global box office. No, I mean, I I certainly think there is an academically defensible position as to why the movie did what it did. Right. I, I was about to say, me me poking fun in any large part to it is entirely it. just... But I, and, and that's fine. I'm just saying it's funny that we're living in a world where this dynamic uh, exists. Yeah, right? sure, where sure. Where what for the longest time was the highest grossing 
film of all time, literally, something that revolutionized the film industry in a lot of ways, uh, kind of had no defenders, like no public defenders. And so the entire narrative was there to be co-opted by people who wanted to poke holes in it. It's just so funny how it was left defenseless in that way, really. So, well, and it's funny, you can actually, you can draw a little bit of a, a little bit of a line here to stuff that happens to musical groups as they age and how time remembers them. Mm -hmm. Cause you take something like, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, Zeppelin, what have you. And the vast majority of the actual OG fans for those people are not going to be on a forum board defending the band. It's all like second, third generation fans. And so seeing it happen to something like avatar where it happens so fast. Cause I mean, we're like what, like 11 years post now mm -hmm. or like 13 or something. And so it's just like, you know, we're not even talking like multiple generations of fans. It's just like, it's this weird phenomenon. So when you put it, when you put it in that context, yeah, it is very strange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we start talking about Avatar? Yeah, that's a great question. But yeah, no, uh, did you see the trailer for Godzilla vs. Kong? Um, I have not seen the trailer in its entirety yet, but oh, I have no. enjoyed lots of memes about Monkey. Oh no! I, one of the things that most surprised me is, and this is surprising in a good way because it means that both brands are more alive in the public consciousness than I had given it credit for. Is the degree to which um, everyone is making very fiercely pro Godzilla or pro King Kong, <laughs> uh, taking their stances online? And it's becoming a real big thing about trying to absolutely knock the other fan base. <laughs> like, I, I remember um, the Twitter, there's some Twitter account that's solely um, dedicated to primates. And they had a picture of some, like, ugly, flat and fat uh, crocodile on one hand, it's like average Godzilla fan and some like incredibly handsome gorilla. On the other hand, it's like average King Kong enjoyer. And you look in the replies and man, oh man, people are at each other's throats about uh, who's the best here. See, I feel like this is what the marketing team at Twix wanted with left Twix versus right Twix. That they just couldn't get it. <laughs> It was, that was a weird kind of it thing. It was really weird because the thing is like that, you know, that what we're talking about here is that people like to pick sides mm -hmm. and people like to have an opinion about things. Mm -hmm. But you can't just say, hey, here's my product. Have an opinion about this product for my express financial gain. Yeah. But the thing is, again, this is it's surprising to me um, that it's not surprising to me that there is an argument. Of course, you, yeah, can, sure. you can go look and see, uh, you know, in any Godzilla or King Kong, you know, obsessed corner of the internet message board, whatever case may be that of course there are people taking sides. I, I was legitimately surprised that it was such a big thing um, in the pop and the pop culture. Therefore a hot second, the fact that the trailer got so many views on YouTube because the past couple Godzilla and King Kong films they did okay at the box office. They yeah. weren't they weren't um, setting the world on fire, really. I can recognize that I'm a fan of this franchise and also that it's still pretty niche. Um, it's the slightly more socially acceptable version still 
of being an American weeb because I think that if if okay, if you want to be roasted for loving Japanese pop culture, you're an anime fan. If you want to be do the slightly more socially acceptable version of it, you like giant monster movies. No brainer, right? It's kind here. of a, it's kind of a backdoor into uh into into the into the establishment. Sure. Sure. Um I who 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 do you have winning the fight, Tucker? Take a stance. Okay, let's break this down. Logically, logically, Godzilla would win. Certainly. Um, who do I think probably has more broad-based support such that if they were actually doing a full fight to the death, who would they do to be uh, to curry the favor of the widest possible audience? King Kong. Probably more people are sympathetic to King Kong. Certainly. What do I think is actually going to happen? And this is hardly, I think, going to be any sort of surprise when they duke it out for a few rounds, but then like team up to fight some greater threat like Mecha Godzilla or something of that nature. Or so, it just winds up in some type of amicable draw and everybody's kind of okay. Right. But I mean, because that's how these sort of versus movies in the past few years they always play it like batman v superman see i want the opposite i want batman v superman where batman gets capped <laughs> like straight up gets a nine straight to the skull like, well i mean the reason this is more fun is that in a fair fight you can okay accepting that they massively upped um king kong's size to have him be a credible yep. threat to Godzilla, you can kind of see there being a fight. Yes, Godzilla has the big advantage of the atomic breath, but they're both giant monsters. They're duking it out. It, it's all good. Whereas there's absolutely no reason for there to be a, in the in the real world, quote unquote, we're talking about giant monsters and flying men and such. There's no reason for them to, for there to be any sort of competition between Superman and a guy like Batman. Superman wins every time. Yeah, no, that's not so even close. they have to come up with an incredibly convoluted series of events for there to even be a, um, even be any sort of competition. <laughs> and, and I'm just, I say they upped God, uh, King Kong's size. And it just makes me think back to the 2005 Peter Jackson King Kong movie, which I think is one of the, the single best, um, blockbuster uh tentpole action films ever made because action adventure films ever made because you could tell the degree of the, the effort that was put into the world building there they actually made it seem like wow these are like biologically plausible creatures you could see there being maybe like a gorilla this big fighting a dinosaur that survived like this works and so on some level i can't lie that it it, it saddens me that the only way we can make the uh, King Kong brand relevant is to completely throw all that aside and say, you know what? Screw it. He's fighting Godzilla. We're going to retcon it. I want big lizard and big monkey just going at it happening. It's happening. I can't wait for a Kaiju to come out as well. And then Pacific Rim music is going to start playing. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Guillermo del Toro even went out recently and said, I would love there to be, a crossover where we have oh my the God, Jaegers please. fight. Please. Um, you know what? The Jaegers and Godzilla and Kong should all team up to fight, you know who? 
Clover from Cloverfield, and the movie will last only five seconds because they would absolutely <laughs> squish that creature. And um, but I would be happy with it because it would bring me joy to see that. Give me those down of a monster. Give me those forces versus Mothra, but make Mothra like comically big, like the size of a moon, and just let me play in that space for a little while. And I would be, you know, just happy as a clam. Well, my name's Tucker. My name's Jeff. I think I'm done bleeding. Yes, this has been the Daily Brain Bleed, and none of this is investment advice. So uh, if you somehow take any information here and use this to buy stocks and lose all your money, don't sue us. Don't sue us.